2: From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, May Martinez. For the first time in California history, the state is losing a seat in Congress. And that lost congressional seat, yeah, it's coming out of L.A. Find out where and why this is happening. Plus, the Oscar ceremony is in the books. We'll hear about the winners, the snubs, and what you think of Union Station as a venue. It's all ahead on Take Two. Stay with us. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. May Martinez, thanks for starting your week with us. All right, coming up, the data from the 2020 census is in, and growth has really slowed across California. We'll tell you what that means for congressional representation in the state. That's just ahead. But first, Los Angeles County remains in good shape when it comes to cases of COVID-19, and officials are crediting the vaccine rollout.
0: There is now real-world evidence that the vaccines are the reason why Our COVID numbers in L.A. County remain very low.
2: That's Supervisor Hilda Solis earlier today during a press conference. She said that as of last week, 6.6 million vaccine doses have been administered across the county, and almost 50 percent of the residents 16 and older have received at least one shot. About 30 percent, she said, are fully vaccinated. Here to talk about vaccine rates across the state and also answer other questions about the coronavirus, we have with us Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you. All right. First to the J&J vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. At the end of a last week, the FDA and Centers for Disease Control lifted the pause on using it. So is that vaccine now back in circulation?
4: You know, I'm not aware that everybody's using it yet. The CDC is going to come out with further guidance tomorrow uh, with a teleconference. And then they state that they will have specific guidance in a publication in the MMWR coming out hopefully next week. So I know, for example, we're not, we're not using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine until we get further guidance.
2: Okay. Uh, It was paused, though, because of a rare side effect. Some women develop blood clots after uh, getting it, uh, getting the shot. What have we learned, though, about the connection there and whether going forward people should feel comfortable about getting that vaccine?
4: Yeah, so the the vaccine caused about one of these rare blood clots per million doses, but it was concentrated among young women. So there were young women who were 18 to 48 years of age, um, and it appears there's about 12 COVID deaths per million 18 to 49-year-old women. So it was concentrated in that area. But if you compare that to the number of deaths following Um, following COVID, there'd be equivalent number of deaths following COVID and and over 100 ICU admissions. So when you look at the risk benefit, it's clear that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks, even in young women However, if you look ahead when there's alternatives, it seems to me it just makes sense that you would use an alternative vaccine for young women and then the Johnson & Johnson vaccine would remain a viable option for others where we have not detected an increased risk.
2: And there, I know there's a demand for it, Doctor. I mean, it's, it's the one-shot vaccine, so I think people want to just get it over with as quickly as possible.
4: Exactly. Not only is it just one dose so that you don't have to get the second dose, but we're familiar with an increased number of adverse effects uh, occurring following the second dose. So people who are afraid of those, who are concerned about those adverse effects or are just needle averse, um, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is for them.
2: Where are we in terms of vaccinations in California? How many eligible adults have received both, uh, both shots?
4: Yeah. So what I've seen in California, the data from the state shows that over 28 million doses have been ad- administered um, and that we've had about 56% of residents who are at least partially vaccinated. 36% are fully vaccinated. So we're, we're doing well in California.
2: Now, wondering, doctor, how big of a concern is it then that after the rush of those who really, really, you know, to be vaccinated, we've kind of hit a lull, a bit of a lull that maybe others won't sign up or do some worries or just people having a lack of time right now?
4: Yeah, definitely there's work to do. So it's kind of the low-hanging fruit at the beginning when there was pent-up demand by certain sectors to get vaccinated. um, Grandparents who wanted to see their grandchildren, healthcare workers, or essential workers who are at increased risk certainly wanted to get vaccinated. And now there's others who are less concerned about getting infected, who may not be as um, uh, health conscious, um, and others who just don't believe in vaccination for whatever reason. And so so for those people, I think we're going to need to be see some more concerted efforts really aimed at the at, at those people um, in terms of responding to their concerns.
2: Yeah, because I saw uh, recent data from uh, the CDC about how five million, more than five million people, eight percent of those who got the first shot of Pfizer or Moderna have missed their second doses. I, I mean, that just if you're if you're going to get the first one, why, why aren't you just on pins and needles waiting for that second one?
4: Yeah, I would think the same thing, that you'd want to get that second one and complete the process. You've already started it. So, yeah, it it is of concern because if you just get that first dose, that's good. And that does provide protection about two weeks following that first dose. But we're not sure how long that protection lasts. Um, So you do get a boost of your immunity after the second dose, and that likely results in longer-lasting protection.
2: Are, Are you concerned at all, doctor, that some might be thinking, well, that's good enough, one's fine.
4: Well, I, I wouldn't rest on one because we know that we yeah. have continued circulation of the virus. There's still continued risk. And then there's the wild cards, which are the variants. And the more the virus circulates, the more the more it replicates, the more chances there are for the variants to take hold.
2: Just like in sports, doctor, it's all about gotta follow through. You got to follow through, right? I
4: mean, that's, right. that's the
2: whole point about this. Now, we received a question uh, from a listener about vaccines. So Ricardo asked, quote, if one had a Johnson & Johnson vaccine... Uh, Can one also get a Pfizer vaccine and what is the recommended waiting time?
4: Yeah. So if you've had the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, that's just one dose. So you're you're fully vaccinated per the CDC two weeks following that dose. So there's no need to get the Pfizer vaccine. Now, we may be talking about boosters somewhere down the line, and and we still don't have any experience with mixing and matching the different vaccines. So right now, I wouldn't recommend any, any additional vaccinations in that circumstance.
2: The other thing, doctor, we keep hearing from people a lot is about a booster shot. So will those uh, who have uh, been fully vaccinated, Need that booster shot? If so, when and how often?
4: I think the answer is yes, there will likely need to be booster shots, but I don't know when and I don't know how often. There's two factors that play into that. One is that we may have waning immunity over time. We know that the vaccine-induced protection lasts at least six months, maybe up to nine months, and we're just not sure if it lasts longer than that. So you may need to boost that immunity with a booster shot. The other factor is the variants. So if the virus strays far enough from the original strain upon which the vaccines are based, then that means we're going to have to try to keep up with that by having a, updating the vaccine with the currently circulating strains similar to what we do with influenza every year by including new strains in the vaccines every single year.
2: You know what? That worries me. Uh, the reason why it worries me is because I think you know the fatigue of all of this, doctor, has gotten a lot of people. I mean, you just talked about it: how people get one shot and they don't follow through and get the second shot. I worry that that some will think, "Okay, enough with this already. I'm done with shots altogether."
4: Well, I, I, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope so too. Um, I hope no. not. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> and, and there are some factors that, that I think will make that less likely to happen. One is that um, it's it's if we have another surge, it's still going to be in the news. And so people, yeah. I think, will then be motivated to um, be vaccinated. And the other is trying to make it as convenient as possible. So vaccine manufacturers are already exploring combining the influenza vaccine with COVID vaccine so that you would only get one season shot if that's the way it plays out over time.
2: We're talking to Dr. Dean Blumberg, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Um, I think, doctor, a lot of us are watching the situation in some Midwestern states uh, with, with a bit of trepidation that we too could experience possibly another surge uh, sometime in our future. So first, let's, let's uh, take a look at the positive and the argument that we won't have another surge. So, doctor, what does California have going for it right now?
4: Well, there's a couple things. One is that the surge in the upper Midwest is likely due to the UK variant, which is about 50% more infectious, more transmissible compared to um, the previously circulating strains. And that one hasn't taken hold as much in California. The other is that in California, I think we've had very clear and consistent public health messaging regarding masking and social distancing. And then we do have a higher vaccination rate um, compared to some states, including states like Michigan, that have a lower vaccination rate compared to California.
2: And so what might trigger another slide back to where we were earlier in the year? And I'm going to guess variants again are the answer there.
4: Variants might might be the trigger, the other trigger is if we if there's opening up too soon in California. So if people are social distancing less, if people aren't masking, then that'll certainly lead to increased transmission and increased circulation.
2: Doctor, on a, on a worldwide, on a global scale, I know that India is having a lot of trouble. Um, a, a lot. I mean, it's just it's an awful situation what's happening in India with positive cases and also deaths. Is that far enough away from the United States where we uh, you know don't have to worry about that, or is it? It's something where if, if it doesn't get fixed globally, then it'll never, ever truly get fixed.
4: I think it's the latter. If there's infection that's raging anywhere in the world, that's a threat to us in the U.S., to us in California. Um, The the, the viruses don't respect the borders. And even with travel limitations, there is some travel and the virus gets around the world. I mean, we've seen what happened after the virus um, originated in in China, um, that it's spread throughout the world, even with travel restrictions. So no one's safe until we can get everybody protected and really suppress transmission significantly worldwide.
2: Now, we were talking about the Midwest. Uh, Some reports out of the Midwest and other areas of the U.S. are that younger people are coming down with uh, worse symptoms. What do we know about that?
4: So younger people are less likely to to be vaccinated because, of course, they weren't targeted initially with the priority groups. Younger people are more likely to be out and about and be active, and so have more more contacts and more opportunities for transmission. And then some of the activities that we've seen younger people do, such as partying or or other large gatherings, are going to increase risk of transmission. So if things open up, I think it's going to be the more active younger people that we're going to see the. In cases,
2: yeah, I was going to ask about that because there have been reports of a handful of kids coming down with uh, coronavirus in the L.A. area, and it's been sourced to youth sports. Um, not so much schools reopening, um, but again, what do people have to remember when it comes to getting together, especially kids who are not vaccinated and and want to just play sports? I, I can't be against uh, kids playing sports, doctor, but I, you know, it, it does make me worry a little bit.
4: Yeah, we know that schools, it turns out, are very safe places for children to be. Children can mask in schools and the normal school activities, That it's very safe and there's very little transmission child to child or child to adult, child to staff. But school sports, you know, that's something where children are very close to each other. Think about a football game where where they're blocking or yeah. tackling each other and they're not wearing masks. The, at least the, the photos and what I've seen is I haven't seen anybody wearing a mask, um, maybe a occasionally on the sidelines. But even when they're practicing, even on the sidelines when they're not in the game, there's very little masking going on. And and, and with this close contact, of course, there's going to be transmission, even with children who feel well. We know that the vast majority of transmission occurs from people who aren't symptomatic. And and, and so these kind of activities are going to result in clusters of cases.
2: You know, doctor, this is where professional athletes could have helped, I think. Um, There there are a few Major League Baseball players. I've seen them wear masks while while they're at the plate or while they're running the bases. Um, but for the most part, professional athletes have not worn any masks uh, when they're active in their games. Uh, it, it, could that have made a, a difference maybe with kids when considering kids emulate professional players so much?
4: Yeah, I think it can. I mean, think about um, bike riding. Think about um, uh, cycling where professional cyclists wear helmets. I mean, that's a great role model for children also. For, um, you know, kids when they're watching other professional players play or, or even the college sports and they're not wearing masks, I mean, that does send the message that they don't need to mask. And the American Academy of Pediatrics and others has clear guidance on limiting transmission during sports by masking.
2: Okay, now to a a rather tricky one. A recent uh, study from MIT found that when indoors, the risk of being exposed to COVID can be as great as 60 feet away as six feet away. So, doctor, how did researchers arrive at this finding?
4: You know, it was a really fascinating study, and it's beyond my comprehension, the math that's involved, all the different (laughs) modeling and assumptions that they made. But it's really interesting. It's based on models of airflow dynamics, the number of infectious particles that would occur, and different activities that occur. For example, if you're singing, there's a much larger dispersion of particles compared to whispering or, or just regular breathing, for example. And so they come up with very Scenarios and and came up with what what they predict would be um, likely infectious scenarios versus uh, um, others that were were safer. So I would I would just you know caution that this is a model. This isn't based on real life studies or showing that actual transmission takes place. But it's an interesting theoretical model.
2: Yeah, and, and common sense applies there too. I remember uh, last year, doctor, there was video of a church choir, um, and, and they were singing toward the the congregation um, and obviously when you're when they were singing they weren't wearing masks the guy there was a guy who was a, had a trumpet solo if you can imagine that right mm-hmm. to the i mean so some of the, it seems like common sense probably should apply
4: yeah and, and singing is is a great example because the singing is predicted to ha- be about a hundred times more infectious than regular breathing
2: and we should say that uh, the study we're talking about from mit that's just one study correct so it's it's not like it's it's all over the place
4: It's one study and it's a theoretical model. So it's not a study that that has proven that, that, that there's transmission over 60 feet indoors, right?
2: All right. That's Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Doctor, as always, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, the Academy Awards Ceremony is in the books. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear about all of the winners, the snubs, if you think any of them got snubbed. And what did you think of Union Station as a venue? It was kind of a different look. What would you think? We'll uh, hear what uh, people think when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us.
5: You scare the hell out of the power structure when you know what's going on.
6: The journalists of LAist work for you.
0: I'm LAist correspondent Jill Replogle. Orange County is experiencing rapid change demographically, politically, and in its built and natural environments. I help people navigate those changes and build connections with their OC neighbors.
6: LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism.
2: Now, with more take two on 89.3 KPCC and wherever you get your podcasts, Sammy Martinez. The 93rd Annual Academy Awards officially wrapped. Now, the ceremony took place last night at Union Station in downtown L.A., and amid the pandemic, things were pretty different this year. Here to recap the night, wins, losses, and all is Rebecca Keegan, senior editor for film for The Hollywood Reporter and KPCC's John Horn. All right, let's dive right in. John, we're going to start with you. Who were the big winners at the ceremony this year?
6: Well, I'm going to give you one of the biggest winners, and he's also one of the biggest losers. Same person. Anthony Hopkins. So he wins the Best Actor Oscar for his starring role in The Father. Very good actor, very good performance, not totally bonkers. But his win also meant the biggest loss for the show's producers, who seemingly had placed all their money on the late Chadwick Boseman winning the Best Actor award for Al Rainey's Black Bottom. And they'd kind of reverse engineered the entire show based on that assumption. I suspect we're going to get into that in a bit. The other winners, well, Nomadland. I mean, it won Best Picture, Best Actress for Star, and also one of its producers, Frances McDormand, and Best Director for Chloe Zhao. And this is a sad fact, but it bears repeating. She's only the second woman ever to win the directing prize. Catherine Bigelow was the first, and the first woman of color to win it as well. And here's a fun fact. Nomadland was made by Searchlight Pictures, which is now owned by Disney, not Fox. And it's Disney's very first Best Picture Oscar winner.
2: Wow, I... I would not
6: have guessed that. You could have John. won some money in a bar uh, before that, but now you lose. You could won some
2: money now, because I would have <laughs> not guessed that. Rebecca Keegan, any of last night's wins or losses come as a surprise to you?
1: Well, there were, uh, as John said, there was this air of inevitability around Chadwick Boseman. Um, and when he did not win at the end of the night, it really took the air out of the room there were some other some other smaller surprises. The Trial of Chicago 7, which had won SAG's Ensemble Award, went home empty-handed. Um, in cinematography, Mank won instead of No Man's Land, which was predicted. Mank is in black and white. Very rare for a black and white movie to win. Um, so some surprises. But overall, most of the night kind of went according to plan, except for that big... Uh, mm-hmm. Boo boo with Chadwick Boseman.
2: Well, let's let's talk about that for a second because John, you mentioned how the the best actor category isn't typically at the end of the show. It isn't, uh, you know, the big, you know, lead up. It's best picture. That's how usually the show ends. That's how we got some pretty great moments in the past. Um, So, I mean, don't you think maybe at some point the Academy it might be good for them to know kind of what the results are. I know they're not well, supposed let's just say to say this
6: if there was any doubt in the accounting <laughs> of the awards being tainted it isn't because if they had known the producer of the show had known who was going to win they would have ditched it yes you're right the the ceremony almost always there have been some slight variations almost always ends with best picture I mean, that's the award that most people care about in the room outside of the room it's the big prize but when the producers of this year's show moved it around I mean, you can only imagine that there was – they really hoped to end on this emotional moment where Chadwick Boseman would be recognized. Maybe his widow would give another moving speech. They put together some sort of montage of his work, and instead they put all their eggs in that basket, and Hopkins wins, and he's not even there. I mean, he's not even at Union Station. He's not at the London – Remote uh, facility. And today he he kind of issued, I wouldn't call it an acceptance speech, kind of an acceptance apology on social media where he recognized Bozeman. It's a tough situation for him to be in. But yeah, I think everybody thought he, he was going to win. And, and Rebecca's right. It all felt it was pointing like that. And it didn't happen.
2: And and Wales was in the back. He was in Wales. It looked kind of nice, actually. The Wales Tourism Board (laughs) might be be thanking Anthony Hopkins. It looked like a beautiful place. I might book a trip. Uh, Rebecca, uh, Chloe Zhao did make history last night. First woman of color, as John mentioned. First Chinese woman to win Best Director. In China, though, where uh, she was born, coverage of the win has been censored. So why is that?
1: Yeah, this is something that started after she won at the Golden Globes. Initially, China was... You know, sort of proudly claiming her. And then an old interview she had given in 2013 with Filmmaker Magazine surfaced. And in that interview, she had described her experience in China as, quote, a place where there are lies everywhere um, that did not sit well with the Chinese government, which had started censoring references to her and to the film.
2: Um, we're talking with, uh, Hollywood reporters, Rebecca Keegan and KPCC's John Horn about this year's Oscars ceremony. Now, as far as, uh, the show itself and how it went, Oscars producers had to put on the awards, uh, during a pandemic. And I got to admit, I was giving the show, cutting it a lot of slack because of all of this, uh, Rebecca, now you spoke with the producers prior to the event and they told you their approach was to treat the ceremony like a movie shoot. So how did that uh, play out? Well some of
1: that was had to do with practical decisions. So they were following the COVID protocols you would use on a film set. That's why people took their masks off when they were on camera and then when they were off camera they had their masks on. In another way this was about the stylistic decisions like the long tracking shot of Regina King walking that opened the show. That wasn't a host standing on a stage, it was more sort of kinetic and cinematic than that. I had based on that conversation with the producers been expecting something even more cinematic i thought you know maybe they're gonna have the first presenter arrive on a train or something you know what did they have up their sleeve um it, it wasn't quite as um, much of a movie-like experience as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, if, if
6: yeah, that presenter ahead. had come in on a train, he or she might have been 30 minutes late. If it was <laughs> <laughs> But but the other point is, they did a couple things. They didn't play people off. And you always watch ceremonies in the past. And somebody's in the middle of a really emotional moment. And the band starts playing. And you're like, oh, just let them finish. And this show, it's like, can we get a band and start playing these people off? Because they just went on and on, and some of the speeches were great, but you know, there's a reason why they have that music because people talk too long, and they are—it was the usual, mostly usual—thanking their agents. So, and they didn't have any of the musical performances; they could have pre-recorded those in some other venue. I thought they missed a lot of opportunities because there are things they could have done, even with pandemic protocols, that they didn't, and it felt like a miss.
2: And John, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, you're right—they they didn't play anyone off; they gave everyone plenty of space, and some sometimes, you know. Actors probably need writing. They they need some writers to to help uh, you know make a point and and make it short, sharp, and, and concise. Uh, Daniel Kalu- Kaluuya at the end there, I think he was starting to run out of things to say because he brought up his mom and dad and their
6: amorous was- experience. Uh-
1: and of, of one of the best parts of the show, when the director cut to a reaction yes, shot of yeah. Daniel Kaluuya's mom in a theater. What did he London. say? Uh,
6: talking Wh- yeah, about his parents whispering. having sex.
1: Yeah. Yes. 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 Whispering to a person, I presume, is his sister, saying, <laughs> "What is he talking about?" Um, yeah. I mean I actually thought that was sort of a case for letting people talk because you got one of the funnier moments in the show. She
2: looked mortified which was actually fun for everyone to see I think, you know. Uh, yes. Rebecca this year also included pre and post ceremony specials so how did that go?
1: Well that it made for a very long viewing day if yeah. you're a completist and wanted to watch all of this stuff. I guess it was you know sort of now like Super Bowl Sunday where you just buckle in at the beginning of the day and stay all day. Um but that's where the original songs were performed in that um, pre-ceremony special, and in some ways, I think that worked really well. There were there were some very cool productions. The group singing from Iceland. There were people performing from the Academy Museum, which looked sort of very elegant. Uh, but some people were disappointed that those songs were not in the telecast often the original song performances can give the show a lot of its energy and um that's that was something that the show at times seemed to lack
2: All right now uh six plus years after the hashtag oscar so white campaign how has the academy addressed concerns of diversity and inclusion since then and really given everything that we've discussed was this year different from years past john let's start with you on that
6: it, almost almost, almost. Was. and i think everybody and rebecca i suspect you and you're included in this when, the, when they got to the, the Actor and Actress Awards, I think there was a very good chance that it was going to be four non-white actors winning the top prizes. Now, a year ago, there was only one nominee, Cynthia Revo, who was nominated among the 20 actors for Best Acting and Supporting Acting. So this year, we have the early winners from Minari and Judas and the Black Messiah. And you're thinking, okay, Viola Davis wins for Ma Rainey, Chadwick Boseman's win. That is a record night. So it didn't happen, but if you look at the nominations, you know, there were nine actors of color were nominated, 70 women received nominations, both are records. But the Academy doesn't make the movies. They can only reward what is made. And because they changed a fundamental rule in the Academy that you didn't have to premiere in a theater to qualify for the Oscars, you know, that opened the door for companies like Netflix and Amazon to qualify. And a lot of the movies that had the most diverse casts were made by them, like Ma Rainey, which Warner Media had and Netflix made. Rebecca, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that as John said, this was a year with historic representation in the nominations, with nine actors of color nominated. Um, and I, you know, you can never look too much into one race, uh, one you know a- awards race. But I do think you can see broadly over years that we're we're seeing the more diverse Academy reflected in these choices. It's been years now that they've been inviting bigger. And more inclusive groups of members. And I think we're starting to see those tastes reflected.
2: And really quick, before we move on to ratings, do either of you know what determines an actor or actress being best, uh, I mean, lead actress or supporting actress? Because I, that, I, I've i never figured that out. And I don't know, I thought Daniel Kaluuya probably could have been best lead actor.
6: Yeah, not Lakeith Stanfield in in that film. Yeah. If you figure it out, tell me. Rebecca, do you have any ideas? Because it, I don't know if it's screen time, but certainly Judas and the Black Messiah is a case, a, you know, a great case of like who's lead and who's supporting.
1: Well, and in that case, the studio had campaigned Lakeith Stanfield in supporting and Oscar voters put him, excuse me, had, had campaigned him in lead and Oscar voters put him in supporting anyway. So sort of studios can attempt to steer voters in one way or another doesn't mean that they will necessarily follow them. It can seem quite arbitrary, especially as it did in that particular race.
6: Yeah, and Anthony Hopkins, when he won for Silence of the Lambs, he won as lead actor, and he's only in the movie for like 20 minutes, if you if you count it. Yeah,
2: I, I've never figured that out. <laughs> I never know what what's going to be, uh, what person is going to be in any particular category. Okay, uh, r- ratings, Rebecca. How many viewers tuned into this uh, ABC telecast?
1: Uh, this was an all time low, 9.85 million viewers, a very steep drop from last year's 23.64 million viewers, which was itself an all-time low. And this mirrors a drop-off in all the other award shows this year. The Grammys were down 51%. The Golden Globes were down 62%. The SAG Awards down 52%. So these award shows are not drawing big audiences during the pandemic.
2: Uh, John, maybe is the, the pandemic maybe the reason to blame and maybe the reason to cut them some slack this year?
6: Um You know, maybe. I mean, because the rules were changed because theaters were closed and studios didn't put out a lot of movies. The Best Picture nominees, you know, Rebecca and I, and maybe you saw them all, but not a lot of people did or even know what they were. So I think they're penalized a little bit by what films weren't included. And even if the studios had released those movies, who knows if they've been nominated. But yeah, this is certainly a year with an asterisk, but years with asterisk count in the record books, just like, you know, any other year. And I think it's it's meaningful that not that many people watch because I think they missed the the pageantry, they missed the red carpet, they missed maybe a host, they missed the elements of a typical Oscar ceremony that weren't there.
2: And one of the coolest things for me was hearing Francis McDormand talk about go to the movie theaters, go to see these movies in a movie theater because that's, you know ultimately these are meant for the big screen, right?
6: Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't think that was an attack on streaming services. No. It was like, let's go back to the theaters. But like in the last couple of weeks, Pacific and Arclight Theaters went under. Alamo Draft House went under. So, yeah, go back to the theaters if they're still in business when people can really go back in, in hordes.
2: That's uh, KPCC's John Horn and also Rebecca Keegan, Senior Editor for Film for The Hollywood Reporter. John, Rebecca, thanks a lot. All right, for the first time in California history, the state is losing a seat in Congress. And that lost congressional seat is coming out of Los Angeles. Find out where and why this is happening. That's the next one. Take two continues. Stay with us. now with more take two on 89.3 kpcc and kpcc.org i martinez the data from the 2020 census count is in and in the last decade the u.s population grew at its slowest rate since the 1930s and that's due to a decline in births and immigration for what it all means here in california we have with us kpcc's caroline champlin caroline all right uh, we've been waiting for this so did uh, california lose a congressional seat
3: Yes, we did. We lost one, which is actually fewer than some researchers expected. But it's still historically bad news for California, because for the first time, we're losing political power in Congress and in the Electoral College. We'll still have the most representatives of any state by far, but it definitely marks a shift in our political history, at least. The state population did technically grow thanks to births and international migration. But in the last decade, more U.S. residents left California then moved into the state and that's why other places like Texas are getting two more seats in Congress while we're losing one.
2: So one seat lost any idea where that seat will be taken away from?
3: So that's a decision for California to make before the 2022 midterm election. It'll be up to the state citizens redistricting commission to look through the census data and redraw the whole state's voting maps. And Claremont McKenna researchers say Los Angeles is looking particularly vulnerable when this happens because we already have a lot of districts and some areas like the San Gabriel Valley, downtown and East LA have been growing slowly and might not justify as many representatives as they have. So, and to be clear, this doesn't mean any Anyone will be without a representative, but voters in one of those vulnerable regions I mentioned could essentially be redistributed into neighboring districts. So politicians would end up representing bigger groups of people, which is not ideal because that means some voters would have less of a say in D.C. And we're really expecting this contentious work of dividing up districts to start heating up by the end of this summer.
2: Okay. Now, there was a lot of concern about participation rates last year, especially in Los Angeles. So what happened in the end? And did that have any effect on our ability to hold on to that congressional seat?
3: Well, today the Census Bureau officials said they were very satisfied with the quality of their their data, despite, as you may remember, all of those schedule changes under the Trump administration last year. Uh, and the Census Bureau ended up taking months longer to process the results than the previous administration wanted. And officials said the final counts matched their estimates closely, which is a good sign. Uh, so they were sort of on track with what they expected. Uh, but still, we don't know what local data looks like. We only have the state-level data. Uh, so until those granular numbers Are released uh, like race and location, counties and cities. uh, In August, uh, we won't know if there's any undercounts in California or in LA, and what impact that might have had on our representation.
2: That's KPCC's Caroline Champlin making sense of the census. Uh, Caroline, thanks a lot. (laughs) Thank you, A. All right, moving on. All last week, we reported on the climate emergency we're facing in the state, and there was so much to cover, some of those stories spilled over to this week. So without further ado, let's head over to the Inland Empire, where the noise and emissions from freight trucks have become so common as giant warehouses displace homes and rural lots. KPC's Sharon McNary reports from Bloomington.
0: Sitting in the shade of her backyard patio, Cruz Baca Simbello looks left and sees her neighbor's homes and trees. She can hear roosters and sometimes horses.
4: It's very peaceful here,
0: and in my later years, that's what I want. But when she looks right, the towering white and gray wall of a warehouse next door dominates the view. It even blocks the very first rays of the rising sun. It went up about five years ago, and since then, it's been round-the-clock trucks and truck noise. In the middle of the
4: night or whatever hours of the morning, the whole house starts to shake from the trucks going through there. And the sound when they're backing up and that beeping, it's
0: very, very noisy. She inherited the place from her parents with plans to retire there. But now those plans are in doubt. A property broker has been hounding her to sell. A developer has included her property and that of more than 100 other families within his plan to rezone 213 acres of rural Bloomington to industrial uses so he can build warehouses. To visualize the scale, that's nearly 3 million square feet of warehouse manufacturing and office space, 46 football fields of interior space. The broker that's bugging Simbello is offering over a million dollars, nearly double the property's estimated value. Some of her neighbors are happy to take the money and leave, but she wants to stay.
4: It's a lot of money, but at this point in my life, I don't think it's worth me giving up my piece, and the way I want to live.
0: The developer says he's already signed up enough property owners to make his project work. He can't force Cimbello to sell, but the zoning under her house could be changed to industrial, and her home could end up surrounded by more warehouses. Why is Bloomington in the crosshairs of the warehouse industry? location mostly. It's close to freeways, Ontario International Airport and railroad lines. It's on the route for goods that come into the ports of LA and Long Beach to the rest of the country. E-commerce companies like Amazon locate there to speed up deliveries to online shoppers. Cities and counties tend to want the jobs that warehouses bring, even though opponents say they tend to offer low pay and few benefits. I met Simbello through Faraz Rizvi, an organizer with the Center for Community Action and Environmental Justice. He says the entire Riverside-San Bernardino area is a magnet for warehouses and their trucks and emissions, adding to the poor air quality and high rate of respiratory illnesses.
5: The Inland Empire, I mean, it's cheap labor, it's cheap land, and it's a lot of space.
0: So if it's a foregone conclusion that warehousing is going to cover this area, What are you really fighting for?
5: The communities here don't like it. They don't want it. And they should have a voice in the proceedings that happen. And we're going to continue to fight for that no matter what.
0: So ultimately, the fight becomes about concessions that can be wrung from the developers. Those developers know those demands are coming, and they talk up the environmentally friendly features of their warehouses.
2: We will be making an investment in green technologies that older areas within the basin just don't have.
0: That's the developer of this project, Tim Howard. He says his warehouses will be super modern with skylights, LED lighting, and solar power. And he's pledging nearly $20 million for sewer construction, new roads, and sidewalks, plus better than average wages for the area.
2: The jobs that would be produced, the typical wage would be $54,000.
0: That's about $26 an hour, about $10 more than the average hourly wage that Inland Warehouse jobs pay right now. Of course, all those promises don't become real until they're part of the developer's agreement with the county. And until then, the Environmental Justice Group will push the county to deny the project or add in even more concessions for those who remain behind to face the traffic and noise of more trucks going to more warehouses. Covering infrastructure, I'm Sharon McNary.
2: And tomorrow, Sharon will be back with us to talk about the impact those warehouses are having and what might be done about it. For a few months now, the city and county of L.A. have been going back and forth with federal judge David O. Carter on the issue of homelessness. Now, the latest uh, last week was that uh, Judge Carter was demanding that uh, some coffer of shelter be given to unhoused on Skid Row and also that a billion dollars be put in escrow to deal with homelessness. Now, he has decided to at least be flexible with one of the two options. Find out which one when take to continue. Stay with us.
6: Subscribe to How to LA from LA Studios wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, I'm e. Martinez going to check in on the latest twist in the federal lawsuit against L.A. City and County's homelessness response. Now, last week, Judge David O. Carter issued an injunction ordering officials to offer adequate shelter to all unhoused residents on Skid Row within 90 days. Then the city and county appealed the injunction, saying that the order represents judicial overreach. This weekend, Judge Carter rejected that argument. Let's bring back L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskes again on the judge's latest move. Now, now, walk us through how Judge Carter responded to the city and county's attempts to halt this injunction.
5: Thanks for having me. So, as you mentioned, this court order came down last week and it was a bombshell. And one of the most significant parts of it was that it ordered the city to put a billion dollars with a B in escrow, a m- a money sort of around homelessness. You'll also recall that Mayor Eric Arcetti last week unveiled his proposal to spend nearly a billion dollars on homelessness. So, the city was scrambling to figure out what they could do to satisfy this order. And we heard from Carter over the weekend, who amended his injunction in part, but not completely, to sort of say that he will give the city 60 days to detail how it planned to spend a billion in funding for homelessness.
2: So that billion dollars that Eric Garcetti uh, said was committed to homelessness in his proposed budget, that's what Judge Carter wants to know exactly how that's going to get spent.
5: Exactly. And basically, the city argued to Carter in court documents that were filed last week that much of that money they don't even have yet. A lot of it is coming from the federal government. Some of it is coming from a bond measure that we passed several years ago to build permanent supportive housing. And basically, they said, it's not practical, we would have to borrow from other accounts and the city's finances and and basic services would be in jeopardy if they had to do this. Carter seemed understanding of that aspect of his order. The part of it that he wanted nothing to do with or did not want to hear their excuses about was this part about Skid Row. He has said that it is objectionable how people are being treated on Skid Row, and they need to be offered housing or shelter, uh, all of them, by October. And he maintained that that still has to happen, uh, basically saying that there's no excuses and that they, the city and county, need to get
2: on this. So is it fair maybe to say that uh, he's giving in a little on that money in escrow, but drawing a hard line on the Skid Row situation? I
5: think so. And one aspect of this that we saw in his order, which was issued Sunday night, had to do with settlement discussions that the city and the plaintiffs in this case, the LA Alliance, who are a kind of collective of downtown business owners, residents, and some homeless people, who they filed this case last year, a and they have been talking quietly to the city. We reported a couple weeks ago that they had been making some progress, but not enough progress to the to the judge's liking. Basically, they were thinking about a deal uh, that would. Create ratios for how many people had to be brought indoors before anti camping ordinances could be enforced to kind of get tents off the streets. And and Carter wrote um, in his order last night basically saying the failure of settlement negotiations over the last few months has been a source of concern for the court. And I think that we can sort of see the judge maybe trying to extract some leverage out of elected officials and get them to the table to talk more about a deal that would be addressing the entire city's homeless population, not just Skid Row.
2: And that's interesting, Ben, that you say that, uh, you know, possibly a deal involving all of the issues with homelessness throughout the city as opposed to just Skid Row. Uh, Last week, we spoke to uh, Kevin DeLeon and also Nithya Raman, and I asked him about that. I asked him how much of this, especially with Nithya Raman, because this injunction has to do specifically with Skid Row, which is in DeLeon's district. But I asked Raman about how, how any of this might affect her district District and possibly others in the city. And she kind of wanted to wait and see a little bit too. So that's interesting that that's a possibility there.
5: Yeah, it is. And I think that these global settlement talks have been going on for a long time and there hasn't been much progress, but there is some clarity about what they could look like. And I think there is some movement within the city council. To, to make a deal uh, that that was reporting I had done before this order had been issued I, I think it, this order could very much scramble that process but but we're kind of in a wait and see mode now you know the court ha- or Carter has ordered for a hearing to take place in late May uh, I think to give everyone time to sort of. Get organized, do their research, and come to him with some options. But uh, for now, we still have these deadlines about when to get people off of Skid Row in place and offer them shelter or housing. Carter did make one other thing clear. These are offers of housing or shelter on this timeline that he's laid out. The people who are living on the streets are not required to accept them. I think that Carter is sensitive to the idea that he doesn't want to criminalize people's lives. I think there could be an indirect consequence that that does happen because in his orders, he has also said that he would not take issue um, or prevent anti-camping ordinances that were constitutional from being enforced. But I think for Carter, he wants to create real deadlines that um, can hold public officials accountable in terms of offering services to the people who are most vulnerable right now.
2: We're talking to L.A. Times reporter Benjamin Oreskus about uh, Judge David O. Carter's latest ruling in a lawsuit on L.A.'s homelessness response. Um, you've spoken to a, a number of legal experts about this. Uh, what do they think of the injunction and its ability to hold up in court?
5: Many people see his order um, and, and the prospect of it being appealed to the Ninth Circuit and saying he's going to have a tough road ahead of him. Um, the reason they say that is that it's not unprecedented for a judge to sort of weigh in in this very active way. Normally judges tell people not to do things. This is a judge telling you, you have to do something because there's a constitutional violation occurring on the streets. Uh, It it comes down to this idea about state-created danger. Um, The idea that if the government had acted more forcefully, it could have prevented a tragedy or a calamity from occurring. Um, but, But experts I spoke with pointed out that the Supreme Court and other lower courts like the Ninth Circuit have been very skeptical and often unwilling to accept arguments that state-created dangers existed even in very egregious circumstances. So he's relying on this legal theory that has been used and marshaled in the past, but, but many people think that it won't uh, hold up in this circumstance. And, and to take that a step further, I think there's a lot of fear among ag- advocates for the unhoused, people who have in the past brought lawsuits Um, to kind of more firmly establish the rights for people living on the streets in areas where there are not enough shelter. And they worry sort of about the consequences of this case being heard by the Ninth Circuit. The point here is that if the Ninth Circuit were to weigh in and say uh, that shelter actually is an acceptable form of solution for people there, uh, that would undermine their efforts to kind of think about a, a right to housing in this country.
2: So Ben, what happens next on this?
5: We will see a hearing at some point in May uh, where elected officials will probably come before Carter. I think the, the question now is whether the city and county will appeal Carter's denying of a stay. Basically, a stay freezes the state of play until a uh, higher court has heard the case. That appeal would go to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and, and so we're just sort of waiting now to see when the city will do that. I, I would expect them to do that. I'm not positive, but just in terms of how they have acted to this point. That would be an unsurprising sort of development. And then we have these deadlines that are now on the books. And if this stay continues, the city and county will start to have to act. And otherwise, they might be held in contempt of court uh, and sort of continue to be sort of embarrassed by this judge who sort of really wants to hold them accountable and is not afraid to directly criticize the way they're doing their job.
2: That's L.A. Times uh, reporter Benjamin Rescus on Judge David Carter's injunction on L.A.'s homelessness response. Uh, Benjamin, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Right, if you missed any part of Take Two, just head on over to wherever you get your podcasts. There we will be, waiting to be heard by you. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well, at L A. That's at L A. And that's good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back tomorrow at 2. Marketplace is next.